Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We have a president-elect. His name is Joe Biden. And we have a vice president-elect. Her name is Kamala Harris. But if you asked certain people in the United States, we have neither. And it is only President Trump. And we're going to talk about what that denial actually means for the future of a Biden administration and U.S. national security. And then we'll move to actually the rest of the world already knows that a president-elect Biden exists. So what does that disconnect actually tell us about what the heck is going on in the world? I'm Alex Ward, here for Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, and I am, as always, here with Jen Williams. Hey. And, of course, now Jen Kirby, who will be on our show for a while, and we're so glad to have you still. Hey, Alex. How's it going? Better now that I'm with you. Um, (laughs) So, let's move forward to this, because I have found this past week, uh, now that we've actually slept and, and like, recovered as as humans, um, I found this last week... just maddening. And so I'm glad I can talk this out. I'm using this as a personal therapy session, to be honest. Um, but, but Jen Williams- I will be charging you by the hour, so. Uh, well, you, you do. <laughs> so um, let's start with you on just like what's been going on because it seems to me like the election, I mean, it has been called. It has not officially certified, sure, but it has been called for Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris. And yet it's like they don't exist. Yeah, uh, so- Kind of to fill everybody in here, the way that elections work in the United States is that the media uh, calls the election for one of the candidates. Uh, This happens for all the races, Senate, House, and for president. Uh, Once basically the path to getting the votes they needed to win is clear and the other candidate has no feasible way to win anymore. And so Vox called it pretty early, uh, based on Decision Desk. And then over the weekend, a bunch of the bigger kind of cable news outlets and the AP and CNN, they all called it for President-elect Joe Biden. That's just how our system works. It's it's normal. Uh, it's always been like this. Uh, Trump has complained before in like 2016 that the media didn't call it fast enough. So he's well aware of this. That doesn't mean that it's official, though, because states don't actually end up certifying their total vote you know, count officially for, in some cases, weeks, because it has to go through this whole kind of elaborate process of getting certified and all of that. But basically, like, once it's called, it's because of math uh, and that, you know, adding up the votes, like, there's no way that even if, so Trump is, like, launching all these kind of court challenges in various states um, for recounts and things like that. Um, But the thing is that most experts say that there's basically no way that any of those, even if they did do a recount, like we're not talking, the margin isn't by like a couple hundred votes uh, like it was in in 2000 with the election, you know, with Bush Gore and Florida. There was something like 
you know, around 500 votes in dispute. Uh, so super close. Here we're talking like thousands and thousands, in some cases, like 40,000, 50,000 votes. So basically there's no way that like uh, Biden has won. There's no way that Trump is going to win this election. And so media calls it. Trump, however, isn't wild about that idea. And so he is insisting that he is going to win, that the election is stolen, and he is refusing to concede the election uh, as basically every president before him has done or every candidate before him has done when they lost. You say, I concede. And it kind of matters because you, you know, call the other person and say, congratulations. And then you like give a speech where you say, hey, America, all of you people who voted for me, I know it sucks that we lost, but you need to support this person because they're the president. And it kind of like is meant to bring the country back together. And that's not happening right now. Okay, but surely, even though the president... And don't call me Shirley. Oh, classic, classic line. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But surely, silence, despite what the president is saying, the transition process continues completely normally and unimpeded. Right, Jen Kirby? Well, not exactly. Oh, come on. (laughs) So, to be clear, like, a concession is, as Jen said, it is a you know, a norm. We do it because we want to sort of symbolize this peaceful transfer of power. Um, But the problem is right now, the presidential transition is sort of stuck in limbo, not completely. So there is a there is laws around this. There is in 1963, uh, there uh, Congress passed the Presidential Transition Act, and it's been updated and tweaked and refined um, many, many times since, particularly in the 2000s. And even President Trump signed an update about, you know, ethics rules, actually, in during his term. So there are, law, are laws around it. And without getting into sort of the nitty gritty, but the transition process really does actually start happening kind of in earnest after the party convention. So processes are in place. And even if, you know, in Trump's case where he could have, in theory, served another term, his government still has to meet certain requirements, reporting requirements on where they are in the transition, setting up committees, preparing briefing materials, all that stuff has to be done by law. But the problem is right now, kind of the real nitty gritty of the transition, which is where Joe Biden's, you know, his transition team and what's called agency review teams, all of his subject matter experts and, you know, folks who um, may potentially serve in his administration, whether it's, you know, the Department of Housing and Urban Development to the Department of State would go in and meet with their counterparts in the federal government and have all of these briefings and meetings to get up to speed on policy. Um, And right now that is not happening. And part of the reason is because uh, this agency known as the General Services Administration, which is kind of the federal agency that kind of does the logistics and management for all the other federal agencies, has not officially ascertained uh, President Biden as the winner. And that ascertainment is usually sort of a letter that's sent out that says, hey, you're the apparent winner. Let's start the transition process. And this kicks off some release of funds. Uh, use of office space, and then again, most importantly, these really, really critical meetings in the federal government with, you know, the counterparts so that there can be a smooth transfer of power. And when Biden takes over on, you know, noon, January 20th, that there's really no kind of gaps in in knowledge. And that right now is largely on hold. And I just want to be clear about why this transition process, it can sound wonky and esoteric and, and, and et cetera. But this is an important thing because it really is like, if the presidency is a relay race, right? This is the passing of the baton. This is like the the two sort of 
you know, the previous administration and the current administration, they sort of run in parallel for a while, then the baton, the baton is handed off and they move forward. If there is no baton, <laughs> um, then you're just kind of running a little bit behind to, to torture this metaphor. It is symbolic in the sense that, like, it is the sort of a handoff process. It is logistical in that, you know, who's actually going to govern in a Biden administration outside of the people in the White House? Who actually fills those posts? Um, and it is also just, like, information. Um, all right, what were you guys doing? So we know where the baseline is on the Biden administration. Do we continue that? Do we change it? Et cetera. Like, this is the normal day-to-day stuff. Like, the, the, the sort of boring things, but that actually makes a government run. It's the information. It's the people. It's, it's the processes. And without that, I mean, again, you know, Biden has a lot of uh, knowledge and and experience in being in the White House and understanding how government works. But still, like the administration starts a little bit behind. And so this leads to the general question that I know I've been hearing a lot over this past week, which is, wait a minute, is there a danger to national security here? Uh, I mean, if you are the Biden administration, you're not getting intelligence briefings. If you're not listening to what the national security agencies are telling you, could you could Biden on January 20th start off like at a national security deficit? Would the U.S. be less safe because this transition isn't going as it should be? Well, I'll step in. And I think the answer is one. I think we should be clear that Trump, even though, as Jen mentioned, wants to do these recounts, they don't seem likely. He is entitled to fight it out in court. The GSA could start the transition process. It says, you know, apparent winner. And that's kind of at the judgment and discretion. So we could begin these processes. This is not something that has to be on hold. And Trump also has discretion if you say, wanted to make sure that Biden was, you know, briefed on national security while he was fighting it out in court. He could do that. You know, Bill Clinton during the 2000 transition, which was delayed because of the the Florida recount, a few weeks later, which some people criticized, but did, you know, give Bush access to the president's daily brief, which is sort of the top national security briefing. So I just want to make clear that, like, this can happen, There's, but it's not happening. But when it comes to national security, I think that is the area where people are the most concerned because as Biden has a lot of executive experience. Uh, He was in the administration not that long ago, which was four years ago. Many members of his transition team you know, have experience in government, maybe were former Obama officials. So the idea that they, you know, might not, they won't know what the Department of Education does is probably not as much of a concern. But national security is fast moving and national security changes a lot. And so Biden would really want to be read in on that. You know, he himself has said, look, I'm not the president. I can't make decisions. It would be nice to have it. But if we can't, we can't. But, you know, a lot of administrations, uh, particularly the Bush administration, transitioning to Obama had put a real emphasis on coordinating with, you know, the national security teams. Um, So I think national security is definitely a concern. However, I think, you know, again, you have experienced people on the Biden team. And, you know, the other concern, I would say, is the pandemic. You know, Biden has started with a COVID task force, but there's this whole Operation Warp Speed, which is about developing and distributing a vaccine. And it's critically important that Biden gets read in on that because we don't know when that might be available. It could be available, you know, January 18th, January 20, you know, 8th. We don't actually know for sure. So I think those are the two areas, national security and, you know, the pandemic potential response are really critical issues that are kind of being shunted right now. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that that you'll hear um, that somebody, I think, on Twitter uh, put out was referring to 9-11 and the, the attacks on September 11th, 2001, 
um, which, you know, obviously it was just, you know, a few months. It was several months into the first Bush term, but um, it was still the first year. And some, you know, the 9-11 report found that one of the factors uh, that contributed to the kind of broader um, environment that led, you know, U.S. intelligence agencies, et cetera, to kind of miss the warning signs uh, and fail to prevent 9-11 was that there was that delayed transition that you talked about, Kirby, with, um, you know, with Bush and Gore kind of fighting it out in the Supreme Court over the recount in Florida. And so it was kind of delayed. Um, and I saw some people kind of arguing that, you know, that was one of the big fears here, that, you know, a terrorist attack or something like that could happen if Biden is not read in. I personally, I think there is a risk of that. Um, when it comes to 9-11 itself, I'm not particularly persuaded that that was, you know, a major factor in in what happened there. And, and in the failures, there were a lot of other things that led into that that were way more influential. But um, But it is certainly, you know, a risk. And you know, one of the things to think about here too, and and I kind of want to get into this, is, you know, in this period of, you know, transition or lack of transition, right, these, all these officials in the federal government are, you know, supposed to be planning. Like, they have, you know, memos that they have to write out, but basically like handoff memos that basically say like, here's what we're doing and here's, you know, here's the keys to the office, like the basic kind of stuff that you do, you know, if you leave a job and you're handing over the position to someone who's, you know, taking the job over from you, you tell them what they need to know. Um, and so they have all this information and it's not getting passed over. So it's not just on the, like the, the incoming team is kind of, um, you know, restricted from getting this information, but the outgoing people are also kind of just in this weird limbo where they're being told, you know, from the White House to keep going, uh, to keep, you know, planning for, like, for example, for the next year's budget uh, and going forward with budget priorities. And, you know, Trump is making these other kind of moves. We can talk about that, you know, at the Pentagon and, like, staffing shakeups. And, like, he's just kind of still acting as if none of this is happening and kind of going forward. And that's also really problematic because it's like the government is not actually preparing, like some people are probably just like going about their business and doing as much as they can without officially meeting. But it's just this bizarre, like the government is just running. It, it just makes me think of like Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner where he, like the coyote just comes like running off the cliff and he keeps running and doesn't look down. And now it's only when he looks down that he drops like off the cliff. It kind of feels like we're just like running off the cliff I and like I mean, I, still I'm running, sort of but there's that, no ground underneath you like, anymore. It's very strange. Trump is still the president. Like, let's be clear right. about that, right? And so he's allowed to do what he wants for the next two months. Sure, for of sure. Of course, there, there's like a parallel process here where he should be helping the Biden transition, but he's not. Um, and what bothers me is that like it, not, nothing about the Trump administration going about its daily business outside of the sometimes the nonsense that that entails um, bothers me because that is their job for 70-something for days at this point. Um, but when you have the president basically saying, I have won the election, you're doing a couple of things. You are, first of all, delegitimizing the opponent who beat you. And so there's not, no fault of his own. Joe Biden will come into the White House a weaker president because... The, his predecessor delegitimized him. And then the party that Trump leads basically followed his lead. You had Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin get asked by reporters, like, have you congratulated Joe Biden yet? And he goes, no. When asked why, he goes, there's nothing to congratulate him on. Um, you have, um, you know, tons of, of, of leading Republican figures 
including uh, Senator Roy Blunt, who's also in charge of the inauguration committee, be like, look, uh, we'll see who's uh, who's there on January 20th. I mean, this is the kind of thing that's happening. And so you now have the, also a, de- de- a, a small d democratic delegitimization because this whole process, the whole reason we have concession speeches and the whole reason we have all this is so the transfer of power is peaceful and America is seen as an example to the world, which brings me to our good friend and lovely um, target of the show, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who, again, our nation's top diplomat, who is America's face of the world after the president, he is asked by a reporter about how the State Department is is dealing with the transition process. And I'll let you listen to what his response is. Hi. Uh, is the State Department currently preparing to engage with the Biden transition team? And if not, at what point does a delay hamper a smooth transition or pose a risk to national security? There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. Right? We're we're ready. The the world is watching what's taking place here. We're going to count all the votes. When the process is complete, there'll be electors selected. There's a process. The Constitution lays it out pretty clearly. The world should have every confidence that the transition necessary to make sure that the State Department is functional today, successful today, and successful with the president who's in office on January 20th, a minute afternoon, will also be successful. Okay, so that's Pompeo saying, (laughs) okay, saying, (laughs) and and I'm trying to be kind here, um, that this is a transfer to a second Trump administration. there was this notion that he was joking and like he does that sometimes. And I watched the press conference. It was earlier this week and he had like his, his trademark sort of like smirk as he said it. So one could say he was joking, but then he was asked about it again on Fox news and he didn't backtrack at all. He was asked point blank, were you joking? He was like, well, we'll see who's there on January 20th. So that's the message that he's giving to the world. And what bothers me, and uh, I want to bring up one more clip, which is, and, uh, and something I've written about, I know we, we've talked about at length, the three of us, but like the U.S. on a regular basis tells the world like, hey, we want, you know, your election to be democratic, free and fair. And, you know, we're watching you. And so a reporter asked like, hey, isn't there a bit of a disconnect between us making that claim for the world and then like literally the thing you just said? And? That's ridiculous. And you know it's ridiculous. And you asked it because it's ridiculous. Uh, look, the truth, the, you, you, you asked the question, yes, ma'am, you asked the question, if you, if you will permit me to answer it. Um, you asked a question that is ridiculous. This department cares deeply to make sure that elections around the world are safe and secure and free and fair, and my officers risk their lives to ensure that that happens. They work diligently on that. Okay, so it's not a ridiculous question. It's just not. Um, no, it is a completely valid question. <laughs> totally. And it's a totally delegitimizing. Like, I... Mm, I'm trying to be measured here. I will put it this way. I believe in American exceptionalism like until that comment. And I'm not kind of kidding um, because the whole reason we were exceptional is despite all of our problems, and there are many, oh my goodness, are there many problems in this country. The one thing we could count on was like, no matter what, this peaceful transfer of power happened, unimpeded, everyone was on board, we moved on. People sort of complained or whatever, but we did it. And now the nation's top diplomat has completely um, ruined it in one press conference. Like, the entire democratic principle has been ruined by Trump and Pompeo and the party that continues to abide by this. And I just don't know where to go from here. Like, it is, 
I, I want to be able to ask a coaching question, but I, I mean, I guess I'm just, what is your response to this? I mean, am I out of my mind for being this sort of freaked out and not freaked out is wrong, but being this worked up by it? Uh, it, I, sure. No, I don't think you are being, <laughs> being too I'm, feel, I'm feeling a little crazy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I don't think you're, I mean, this is a pretty, look, there's an alternative universe where even Trump, who wanted to fight it out in court, and his administration said, look, we believe we will prevail in these court fights. Um, but in case we don't, because, you know, the American government and the American people are too important, we're going to, you know, uh, respect, you know, uh, Biden and we're going to read him in so that no matter what happens, the American people will be prepared. And they can't even do that. They have to sort of live in this alternate reality where everyone, including the world, sees it. And it is really troubling for the United States' credibility moving forward, whatever, you know, Secretary of State, whoever, TK, um, is in the Biden administration, will not be able to speak with as much authority. And to be clear, Trump has been eroding that long before even this happened. But to have, you know, the United States of America, the like, as you said, Alex, the hallmark of it with all of our problems has been this peaceful transition of power that we've seen, you know, no matter what happens, whether it's opposite parties, whether it's a one-term president, we have, you know, done the process and everyone has done it in good faith. Uh, and to to see the secretary of state basically say denying reality, um, I think it gives a license to many other states. And I will say again, as I said last week, that I do believe that if the institutions prevail and Joe Biden is sworn in on, you know, January 20th, as he's supposed to be, that will that will help like I guess, buffer against some of that. But I think we're in a really bad spot um, this week. And it's really, really trying for those of us who live in reality. Alex, you want to throw to the yeah, second half? Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a great segue because it seems like the only people currently living in reality aren't in the United States. and uh, So we'll tackle that in the second half of the show. Welcome back, worldly listeners. Uh, during the break, we sort of continued the American exceptionalism conversation. And so we want to bring a bit of that back in the second half. And then we promise we'll move to the global part. But what I had said, you know, off, well, initially off air was like, I, I really, and I want to emphasize this, I really did believe in this notion of American exceptionalism um, until this week. And I'm not kidding. Like, it really was until this week. And the and a lot of that has to do with like, look, uh People of the show know, dual citizen, whatever. But like my mom came to this country first to marry my dad. Let's must be honest. But second, it was because she truly believed in the promise of this nation because and she grew up in a dictatorship in Spain and like an American democratic experiment appealed to her and like enough to move to Maine and then Massachusetts. Like that's how, <laughs> how much she believed in it, right? And it is astounding to me that and how fragile it was for like, I guess I, I always believed in it strong. Like I defended it constantly and like and whatever. And yet, all it took was to see Trump claim he won and to see the nation's top diplomat back him, like, in in the open, publicly, multiple times. And it's just, like, what bothers me is because I, you know, I'm a foreign reporter and, 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 and th think about the world a lot, that was always, like, the defining characteristic to me was despite our problems, despite all the things we, we mess up, like, this was the one thing we could count on, that... Democrats, Republicans, independents would just be like, all right, we're moving on. Yeah, that was a tough election. We disagree. We're still going to fight you, but at least we can move on. And we don't have, we can't claim that anymore. Like that, that ended this week, period. 
And so I'm, I, you can't be exceptional if you're like everyone else. So anyway, but I, I know Kirby disagrees with me. Well, I don't disagree in, to- in, in totality. Like we're in a really bad spot, but I think that if we can withstand this, which is basically the president of the United States who is still president for the next 70 some odd days, if that is the right count right now. We, we can't, can't do math. Track. <laughs> but him and pretty much his entire party is backing him up in uh, spreading a complete fallacy, which is that there is widespread voter fraud, which there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever to support. And even if it's not even it's not even worth entertaining um, how ridiculous this idea is. And he is perpetuating this among his party and his base. And it is a real threat to our democracy. And I do not underestimate that. And it is a real threat to our standing in the world. But I think, or I believe, or I'd like to believe that if the United States can withstand this attack, which is an attack from within, there's no doubt. And I don't know what what the future will bring, but if we can withstand it, I I believe that will sort of prove the exceptionalism of the American experiment. And maybe that's a bit, you know, prideful of me as an American, but I want to believe that the institutions are strong. I want to believe that the core is still strong enough to withstand this. And if it can, I think then that is maybe different from some other places. That doesn't mean it can't happen here, but I like to believe that the alternative is is much brighter. Well, I think, you know, that's a good kind of segue into into the global kind of issue here because, you know, as as Alex, you mentioned, like the rest of the world is still very much used to America being that country that... Like, there's going to be a peaceful transfer of power. Biden's, you know, Biden was elected. He's going to be president on January 20th at, you know, 12.01 p.m. or whatever. Um, And so the rest of the world is just, like, straight up moved on. They're just like, yep, okay. And so you have, you know, world leaders, um, most of them, and we will get into this some that haven't, but most of, you know, especially U.S. allies, so, you know, Canada and France and Germany and the U.K., like, you have, you know, world leaders, uh, calling Joe Biden and congratulating him and sending out tweets and saying, you know, congratulations on your win. Um, and, you know, already talking about things like, you know, we're looking forward to having America back. We're looking forward to working with you and your administration on, you know, climate change, on trade, on, you know, dealing with like world threats to, you know, the to global stability, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, even if Trump is doing this kind of petty you can't make me leave, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I can't hear you, la, 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 nobody won except me. Like, the rest of the world is just like, yeah, okay, anyway, uh, hi, President-elect Biden, welcome. Uh, You're going to be taking off. Like, in some ways, I feel like that is kind of a testament to, you know, the the strength of American democracy um, or just, you know, the testament of, like, the persistence of reality that, like, other people aren't particularly concerned or just like aren't even really bothering to listen to Trump and they're just like yeah okay um but like he won so we're gonna go talk to that guy because he's coming into office I mean Boris Johnson the prime minister of the UK uh I believe on Wednesday was uh, taking prime minister's questions on the floor of parliament and referred to Trump as the previous president um which like I mean he's still the current president so that's not technically accurate but like it shows that, like, they're clearly already thinking, like, this is going to happen the way it always happens. And, you know, no matter what these shenanigans are, that Trump will leave office on January 20th and there will be a peaceful transition of power, et cetera. Um, and, you know, part of that to me is that these world leaders have seen 
and worked with and, you know, spoken to Donald Trump for the past four years and are pretty clear on his behavior and that he can be very petty and uh, narcissistic and, you know, deny reality at every turn. And I think they're probably just like, yeah, that's just him. So we're going to move on. I want to be comforted by that, but I'm not. <laughs> and the reason I'm not is because I we have seen tons of other countries have like an, an, a, a leading political figure say this election was rigged, blah, 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 blah. And then still things move on. But you would never say that that country is like a democratic icon. I would say that the U.S. was the uh, shining city on a hill, blah, 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 blah. Like all that, all that was true. And even if we end up with a, a dimmer light, you are no longer exceptional, period. And that's what bothers me. Um, even if, as I completely agree, Biden will be president on, on January 20th, all good. This whole process has um, sort of ruined that image. Okay, but let's table the American exceptionalism thing because otherwise that's a whole new episode. Um, I do think we should talk about these foreign leaders a bit more because uh, it's astounding, actually. Like, the number of of people who have started to call the president-elect Biden, um, you've got Justin Trudeau of Canada, you've got Angela Merkel in Germany, you've got Yoshi, uh, Suga Yoshihide in Japan, you've got Moon Jae-in in South Korea and more. It's it's interesting. And like the more, and, and all of this, by the way, because there is no official transition process without the help of the State Department, which would usually be doing this, right, uh, Kirby? Yeah, uh, the, I believe there was some reporting about how kind of calls were, were piling up for Biden because I guess a lot of world leaders do have his number since he's been around for a while. But, you know, the State Department is supposed to facilitate these kinds of calls. Um, and again, in part because there is only one president at the time. And, and so the idea is to do this in a formal manner. But um, that isn't really happening because Biden doesn't have no choice. And he has to sort of move on whether or not the Trump administration is going to cooperate with him. Um, but I think, as Jen said, like it's a really interesting point, you know, that world leaders seem to at least feel like they might have a partner again, whether or not, you know, how the U.S.'s standing looks like. I think the idea is without Trump on the scene, they can at least talk to the United States again and collaborate on things like Jen was saying on climate change. But at the same time, I do think there is a sort of sense, um, even though the four years feels really long, it hasn't actually been as maybe entrenched as as we might think, the Trump administration and the America first mentality. You know, I kept seeing a bunch of articles out of the UK about like what Joe Biden means for Brexit, which like if that is not sort of a an inkling of what, you know, oh, the power of a world leader or still the clout that the US has, I'm not I'm not quite sure what does. But that being said, these are a lot of our, you know, traditional allies in, you know, Europe and Asia who are doing this. It is not everyone. And there are some pretty notable world leaders who may not necessarily be our friends, but we certainly have to work with on the world stage who have been a little bit less forthcoming about offering their congratulations to our president-elect. Yeah. So Xi Jinping of China has not said anything, uh, has not congratulated, <laughs> do not congratulate, uh, Joe Biden. Um Jared Bolsonaro is continuing to stonewall. Uh, President Erdogan of Turkey took his time, but eventually he did uh, give in and <laughs> congratulate Biden. Uh, AMLO, um, uh, President Andres Manuel uh, Lopez Operador in, in Mexico uh, is <laughs> putting out really odd statements saying that basically that that Mexico isn't a colony of the U.S. I mean, and so he doesn't have fact to- Fact check true. 
Yeah, <laughs> I'm just not sure how that relates yeah. to the issue at hand, but whatever. Um, but the one that, that I think is most interesting to me, um, maybe not surprisingly, is Russia and Vladimir Putin. Um, and so, you know, this kind of goes to the the kind of question that we're getting at, not to reopen that wound, but, you know, of, of American exceptionalism, but how, you know, other countries are perceiving this kind of chaos and transition um, chaos that's happening in the U.S. right now. And so, you know, Putin also hasn't, you know, congratulated Biden yet and is basically one of the group of, you know, a few kind of many of them authoritarian leaders who are refusing to kind of weigh in yet. Um, well, what's really interesting is the Kremlin is using this, uh, you know, this chaos that's happening as, you know, a cudgel against democracy, as, which is expected, right? Because, you know, this is a kind of common refrain you hear. You also, you know, hear this a lot in China as well. But, that you know, this is why we need stability. This is why, you know, this is why you need a strong leader. This is why democracy is so messy and, you know, it's so unstable and there's unrest and, you know, you can't get things done. Like, that's what democracy gets you. It's messy. This is why you need a strong, stable, uh, you know, system that, that, you know, where power is just kind of concentrated all at the same time with the same person over and over. Um, but what's interesting to me, and I think is is a kind of a ray of hope, is that Russian opposition leaders, in particular Alexei Navalny and his kind of camp, um, are also using this in the opposite way. And they're basically saying, like, look, you know, the fact that that there is this kind of process and the fact that it is messy and the fact that like the outcome isn't predetermined and the fact that like there can actually be an election where somebody doesn't know the the final outcome that is democracy we would love that that sounds great like yes it's messy and yes it's chaotic but like people got to vote and pick and it wasn't just predetermined like you know in Russia the question isn't will Putin win another term usually it's by how much will he win? You know, like, that's the question. And so, you know, I think pro-democracy opposition figures kind of around the world are using this as an example. Like, you know, even as bad as it is, as like, look, we would love to have that kind of mess in our country rather than, like, the nonstop stability of never getting to choose our leader and having the same person in power for years and years. I have to say, the the, the people who haven't called Biden to congratulate him, you know, the Putins, the Bolsonaros um, of the world, it does speak volumes about them, um, but it actually, I feel like, speaks volumes about Trump and mm -hmm. the policy that we've been leading for the past four years because Trump's entire theory of the case was, uh, well, one, he seems to like, you know, autocratic leaders. I'm not making that, like, he has said that himself. He's like, I don't know why I don't like them, but I do. Someone explain that to me. Um, so that's his own assessment. But the other is that his theory was, like, the U.S. only has interests. We're not a values-based country. What we do is we become friendly with these, I become friendly with these leaders, I can sit in a room and make a deal with them, and then the U.S. is better off. And what this says is kind of two things to me. One is, of course, they're trying to use this chaos to make it harder in the U.S., which I understand. I mean, I don't, they're being a bit wily here. But also that they were never friendly to the U.S. They were kind to Trump because they felt they could get something from him. Like, the U.S. relationship with these countries did not improve. If they had improved, they'd be calling Biden right now. But they're not. And so it's, to me, it blows up that entire argument. Um, I mean, there are other reasons too, but it is the newest and greatest example. The American relationship with the Chinas and the Brazils and whatever's of the world did not improve. Trump's relationship with these countries did. And whether or not you think that's good enough, that's fine. But for me, advancing U.S. foreign policy is, is advancing U.S. foreign policy. That even if you leave, the ties that bind continue regardless. 
Um, but we're seeing that Trump, as he walks out, is taking some of these— Or doesn't walk out, as or, the case may be. Yeah, but as he walks <laughs> out, like, is is sort of taking these relationships with him um, and making it harder. Like, Biden has to kind of start not from square one or not from where Trump left off, but from, from earlier than that. Um, he has regressed our policy to those places. And I didn't think I could glean so much from a phone—from, like, a lack of a phone call, but I really do think that's the symbolism here. I wonder, too— you know, what this means sort of in the broader scheme. And it will probably be hard to know because, you know, sort of we're we're living this out in real time, but what it means for the larger kind of question around the rise of sort of right-wing populism and these populist leaders like Bolsonaro. Um, and, you know, as we meant to talk last week in Hungary, like where this is, you know, in the kind of grand scheme of things. I mean, I I think maybe a lot of our allies thought that the, you know, removal of Donald Trump was kind of a, a positive sign for the world that it is possible to kind of uh, push this back a little bit and and sort of stem the, the, the tide. And it will be interesting to see how in the space left behind by Donald Trump, what happens to the Bolsonaros of the world and how they change or morph on the world stage, not just their relationship with the United States, but like what kind of figures they take. Will they also be diminished now that Trump is gone? Um, or will their stock rise because now they're the new leaders? It will be interesting to sort of see how those dynamics play out vis-a-vis um, -vis the United States, but also just kind of the the world at large. And, and maybe to end on another optimistic note here, I mean, I think it is also interesting to to be clear that like the countries that are calling Biden are traditional U.S. allies, right? They are the Japans, the Koreas, the Germanys, the Frances, the Canadas. And that's good. It does feel like that, at least in that sense, that sort of policy is continuing, but they also clearly seem happier about it, um, calling Biden. I mean, the photo of like Justin Trudeau calling Biden, he was downright giddy. Um, it was precious. It looked like <laughs> he was like talking to his long lost love on the phone. It, it was adorable. Oh, it was unbelievable. And like, even Macron, you know, the video of him calling Biden, he's like looking at it through a mask. He's looking at his papers like, I'm not going to do the accent, but like, we're so happy to have you back and whatever. But you could see he was just kind of like, Da, 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 life is better. And like, it's, there is, I mean, one of Biden's theories of the cases was also like, America is back. That's his his sort of slogan at the moment. And it does seem like, at least for America's traditional allies, typically democracies, that they do feel that way. Now, there's a lot of work for Biden to do to reward that faith, of course. Um, but at least um, if I can take anything from those calls, it's that there really is this feeling that maybe America is coming back, that maybe that that long-lost ally um, is going to return. Um, but I, but I, again, I do think Biden has his work cut out for him. All right, so we're going to end on an optimistic note for Worley for maybe like the third time in, in, in our entire run. It, it, it's like starting to become a trend. I'm getting a little concerned about us. Yeah, we really need, to, we really need a Biden administration to start so we can start um, like hitting it as opposed to just being like, well, we're, we're in a holding pattern. Um, but in the meantime, uh, hopefully uh, you find this podcast exceptional and you will rate and subscribe and tell us how great we are. And uh, otherwise, we will talk to you next week. Bye, y'all.